Two quick things before we jump in. First is we will um, be sending you a little survey. We are not above feedback. In fact, we welcome it. And so you will get a survey sometime before the end of the week asking for your input on how the study went and how you might think that things could go better. We're also open to encouragement as well, so feel free to put that on there if you want. Uh, But we do um, hope that you will just take time to fill that out because it does really help us to see if there are things we need to be looking at or um, ways we can improve. So that's coming your way. And then also just remember that in September we will start with the book of Joshua and then we will do the book of Judges. And so I'm really looking forward to that. In Joshua, we will get to talk about the lighthearted topic of genocide. Yay! So, um, and then in Judges, we're going to have a concubine who gets cut up and mailed around to a bunch of people. So um, it's going to be a big year in the Old Testament. And I don't know how you feel about studying the Old Testament, but I know that personally, anytime I've ever gone back and done a study of one of those books, there's always a little bit of fear in me when I start that there's going to be something in there that is so crazy that I don't have any way to fit it into my understanding of the character of God. I'll just tell you, that's the truth. That's the way that I feel sometimes looking back at the Old Testament. And so if I feel that way, I'm pretty sure you might have had that same experience. And I just also want to reassure you that any time I have gone back and studied the Old Testament and given it the attention that I need to, I am always um, reassured and I am always um, more aware than ever that God is exactly who he says he is and that his entire word is beneficial and is profitable. So I'm really looking forward to it. And some of you may have thought that I could not spend 11 weeks in a book that was only five chapters long. Well, those of you who have done the the Johns know that we were going to make it through in a whole lot of time, uh, not many chapters. Um, So it'll be, you know, the Old Testament, we move a lot faster. But in the New Testament, it has been a really great time this year to get to spend so much time in these small passages of scripture that are so packed with information and with help for us just help for us and the book of James is a help it is a help at every turn Um, I asked you in your small group time to think through uh, in your homework that you had for this week what did you think was the key verse in James and um I don't know what verse you came up with. I have taught this study about four times now in varying lengths. I think I started with a five-week class, and then I started expanding it out as I wanted to talk more and more about uh, what was in there. And the first time that I taught it, I think that I would have said that the key verse was chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That felt like it summed it up for me. It was this whole idea of don't just listen. Don't be a practical atheist. Actually do what it is that the Lord is asking of you. And then the next time that I taught it, I kind of shifted a little bit. I made it into chapter 2 where I thought the main important verse was. And it was chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I decided maybe that was a better summary statement of what I had gotten to before. And just this whole idea of just the uselessness of a faith that doesn't translate into works. And then this time around, as I did my own homework, as I always do each week, I was sitting there thinking, I don't know, I feel like this time the verse that I feel like really sums up what's going on in James is in chapter 3. So if I teach it two more times, maybe I'll end up in chapter 5 with my most important verse. But this time, I settled on chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Because I thought, man, that just 
picks up on so many of the themes that we've seen over and over again in the book of James. It addresses that issue of speech because if you are pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, there's only a certain way that you're going to use words. And I think it even points to the idea of steadfastness that we saw again and again because a peaceable, gentle person who's open to reason can't be an impatient person. Those things all take steadfastness to develop. And so there were just so many, you know, partiality is brought in there. So many things in encapsulated in that verse. So I don't know what verse you came up with, and the good news is there's no wrong answer. And the thing that I see from the way that my most important verse is moving its way through this book is that we're not done with the book of James. Like tonight, we're done with this study of the book of James, but we are not done with the book of James. Every time I come to this book, there is something new that comes out to me. And it probably depends on where I am in life and what the Lord has been showing me. But we never seem to reach the end of what James has to say to us. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. So we started at the beginning of the semester with this idea of genuine faith. That genuine faith does these certain things. And that we had our $20 bill and we said, what? How can you know whether this is a genuine $20 bill? How can you know whether it's real or a counterfeit? And we talked about what are the watermarks of the Christian faith? What are the, the, um, the color shifting ink and the, and the colored threads? What is the equivalent of when we look at someone's life being able to say real faith or counterfeit faith? And we talked about how the most important life that we need to look at when we're asking that question is not the person sitting next to us. That when we sit here in a study of James, if we walk away each week thinking, man, I'm so glad that the girl next to me got to hear what the teaching was on tonight. We've done a colossal disservice and we have completely missed the point, right? That the purpose of coming here is to ask the question of ourselves, what are the marks of a genuine faith? How do I know if I am living my life in such a way that the genuineness of what I say I believe is demonstrated in the way that I live my life? And so we started in week one with genuine faith perseveres in trial. And we saw what that looked like because we knew that James's original hearers were facing a lot of different trials because of their faith. And each of us, too, is facing trials. And so we saw that perseverance is what happens after we have gone through a trial and that maturity follows. And then we got to look in week two at how genuine faith resists and flees temptation. And we got to see that there's a difference between trials and temptations because sometimes we're a little fuzzy on that. But we got to see that a temptation is something that we invite, right, that our own desires. And remember, that was Baby Bengal Tiger Week. Do you remember that? Baby Bengal Tiger Week. And it was a week that, you know, meant a lot to me. It's the, I, I come in here thinking, oh, I'll just teach something for everyone else. I'm, I'm not sitting next to someone hoping it's for them. I'm like, oh, can I just offload this onto all of them and let it not hit me? But the truth is, is I spent the week thinking of all the baby Bengal tigers that were living in my own life before I got here. Genuine faith resists and flees temptation. It breaks the cycle of I see it, I want it, I take it. And then we saw in week three that genuine faith was actively obedient to the word. And we saw that just as the beauty pageant contestant who looks into her physical mirror and does whatever it takes to change her appearance so that she more reflects perfection, so we also need to look in our spiritual mirror and do whatever it takes to change ourselves so that we become transformed into the perfect image of the one who loves us. We saw in week four that genuine faith didn't discriminate, that we were to show favor to all and favoritism to none. 
that when we turn and look at the person next to us and size them up for what we can gain from them, if we are nice to them or if we show them favor, that what we are doing is making ourselves unjust judges. And the just judge will have none of it because he has shown great favor to us and he can gain nothing from us. So then we saw in week five that genuine faith bore the fruit of good works. We talked about this idea of practical atheism, that we cannot be people who say one thing, but then our lives don't match what they do. And we saw in week six that genuine faith chooses words with care, that if we could control our tongues, we could control every other area of sin in our lives, that it would be the supreme act of self-control. James spent a lot of time talking about our tongues, didn't he? And, you know, I think in a room of women, we're like, James, back off. But here's the deal. Men have trouble with their tongues, too. James is a man, right? And so I think sometimes when you're in a women's Bible study, you start to think, oh, man, we chose this so we could beat up on the women. But the thing is, is anybody who has a tongue has trouble with a tongue. But, yeah, do women have certain ways that we use our tongues that are really, really tough? We do. And often we're better, you know, if the man's sin of the tongue is that he doesn't say enough, the woman's sin of the tongue is often that she just says whatever comes through her head, right? So we saw that the mark of genuine faith must mean that in some sense we're moving towards some medium ground there, right? Where women maybe speak a little less, men maybe speak a little more, but then again, that can be personality driven, so you never know. Just an awareness of what our speech is doing and who it's impacting and how it's reflecting on what we say we believe. And in week seven, we saw genuine faith hates the wisdom and ways of the world. We saw that friendship with the world was hatred toward God. That there was not middle ground there. And then we saw in week eight that genuine faith submitted to God's will. Slander, boasting, and hoarding were put before us. And then last week, we got to see that genuine faith speaks with integrity. It lets its yes be yes and its no be no. And it practices the positive speeches of prayer, praise, and confession. And then it speaks the good word of the gospel to a brother or a sister who is wandering away from the truth. All of these genuine marks of faith that were laid out for us and for our consideration, for us to soberly weigh And we used our $20 bill example so that we could get this idea straight in our head. But I thought as I was getting ready for tonight that if we were back in James's time, we would not think in terms of dollar bills, would we? What would we think in terms of? Coins, right? They didn't carry dollar bills around. So I wanted to take you tonight to a story in Matthew chapter 22 where we're going to see James's half-brother Jesus give us a perfect illustration of this idea of what genuine faith is looks like. Matthew chapter 22. So if you'll turn there with me. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15, says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And so at this point, Jesus' warning bells are going to be going off in his head, right? They're already trying to set the trap with flattery. Let's see what they say in verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So we hear this question and we think, that doesn't sound like a question that's going to entrap anyone. I mean, he's just asking, they're just asking, is it okay to pay taxes? But if you think about what's going on here, you have to understand they've put him in the worst possible situation you can imagine. 
Because who, at the point that, he, that Jesus is teaching, the Jews are under the dominion of Rome, right? So the Roman Empire has come in and has taken over their land and is subjugating them to their rule and is even taking tax money from them to help run the empire. And this is why Matthew, the tax collector, had such a, such a bad reputation. It's why all the tax collectors did, because if you're a tax collector and you're a Jew, you're basically taking money from your own people to fund a hostile uh, government that is running your life and is taking away your ability to transact business the way you want to and to practice your religion the way that you want to. And so basically when they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then who will hate him? The Jews. And if he says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, who will hate him? The Romans. So they're placing him in a dilemma where no matter what he answers, he will not just have an enemy who feels slightly ugly about him. He will have an enemy who is ready to come and do him harm. So let's see what Jesus says in response. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then he says something interesting. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Okay, so let's stop right there for a second. I have a picture of this to put up for you. So this is the coin that would have been shown to him. This is the denarius of the emperor Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time that this story is taking place. And so you notice that what's on it, there's, a, there's stamped the likeness of Tiberius, and then there is an inscription that is on the coin. And what the inscription says is, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, that's what the inscription says. And so what we need to understand about what's going on here is why these coins were minted in the first place and what Jesus is saying when he asks them these pointed questions that he does. So these coins would have been minted by whoever was the Caesar at the time. So when Caesar Augustus is Caesar, he mints coins. And when Julius Caesar is Caesar, he mints coins. And in the case of Tiberius Caesar, he is not one of the most powerful Caesars ever, so he didn't mint that many coins. And these were the coins with which he would have transacted business with people who were in business with him. This was the actual coin that was used to pay the tax. And so when Jesus says, who has the coin? Show me the coin for the tax. And the teachers of the law, the people who are coming against him, are actually physically able to produce one of these coins that is not in wide circulation. What does that tell us about them? They are actually in business with Rome at this point. So not only are they trying to trap him, but Jesus is saying, I see your hypocrisy. But there's another thing that these coins were used for. They were a means of propaganda. They were used to spread the image and the authority and the power of the one who was the Caesar at the time. And so when they were spread throughout the land, they were a tangible representation of his power, his wealth, his subjugation, and another thing. Did you catch it? Did you hear what the inscription said? Let me read it to you again. It said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So what this coin says in the inscription is that the one whose image is pictured on it is not just Caesar, but he is also what? He is God. He is the son of a God, and he is God himself. 
And it is stamped on this coin and it is passed around so that everyone who transacts business with this coin or holds this coin is to buy into the idea that Caesar is not just Caesar, Caesar is God. And so when Jesus asks his question, why put me to the test, show me the coin for the tax, and they bring him a denarius, and then he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, Caesar's. Now listen to what he says next. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Well, when I hear what he said at first, I'm like, so I don't understand then. Are we supposed to pay taxes? Are we saying pay taxes to Caesar? But if he had said that, then they would have been able to trap him in what he had said. But he appeals to their understanding of the law. He appeals to what they know of the scriptures. Because what does it say in Genesis 1-1 about the man and the woman? We were created in the what? Image of God. You and I are stamped with the image of God. We have his law inscribed on our hearts. And we should be like propaganda for the Lord everywhere we go. Anyone we come in contact with, they should see that image and they should know that our hearts are inscribed with the law of the Lord and we love it and on it we meditate day and night and we are not merely hearers of that law, but we are doers also. And in the doing, the image of our Heavenly Father becomes more clearly inscribed on us. Because what happened? Genesis 1, the image of God, we are created in it. And then in Genesis 3, what happens to the image of God in man? There's a serpent and there's fruit and there's a terrible thing that happens. And all of a sudden, is the image of God evident in us? It becomes marred. It becomes effaced, to use a term that is not used very often anymore. It becomes worn away. It becomes hard to see anymore. And it is not until Christ comes and dies... And his sacrifice is applied to you and me and we are granted a new heart that once again that image begins to be restored in us. Once again, you begin to see the inscription, this one belongs to me. Charles Wesley, you're probably familiar with him, he wrote a hymn I bet all of you know called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know that one? And there's a verse that never gets sung anymore, but it talks to this particular image, and I just love it. Listen to it. He says this, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. In other words, the likeness of fallen Adam that we have carried around since the fall, Lord, remove it. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. We are like the denarius that is stamped with an image of us, a fallen man. And the Lord comes and he creates in us a new heart. And we become stamped again with the image that we were meant to carry, the image of our Heavenly Father. And when we are not merely hearers of the word, but doers also, when we take seriously what James is saying to us, what we are doing is we are being more and more conformed to his image, and it is becoming more and more apparent in who we are. And so when Jesus says to a group of people who have come against him and said, should we pay tax to Caesar? And he answers with, 
Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. What is he saying? You, you are stamped with the likeness of God. Give him what is his. It is no wonder that James devotes five chapters to this very topic. That he devotes his time to reiterating the things that Jesus said on this very topic. And I think it's such a timely thing for us to meditate on. Because when did we say it was that James came to the realization that his half-brother was more than just his half-brother? Wasn't it when he saw him resurrected? So I hope as you go into Easter weekend in just a short time, when you think and meditate on the resurrection of Christ and what it means, that you will, as James did, see Christ as the risen Lord, not as merely a man, and you would understand that because he is raised from the dead, you and I are evermore having etched on us his image, having more etched in our hearts his words, and are daily being transformed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for James. We thank you for the words that he has given us to help us to grow into mature, steadfast believers. Those who are pure in speech and in heart and who delight to make peace and to bring about a harvest of peace. We pray, Father, that we would render unto you what is yours. That we would act as those who spread the knowledge that you are God. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.